Hurts admitted to spending money on the NFL because of her influence. It's what economists call the Taylor Swift effect. Profound. Now, I know some of us NFL purists are mumbling even at the mention of her name. But even us, we cannot deny her effect upon the NFL. Even my girls are watching football now because of her. But it does raise another question for us, kind of an existential question about the Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey love. Does her influence affect the outcome of the game? Could her and Travis Kelsey's love propel the Chiefs to a Super Bowl championship once again? That sounds really cute, but that's preposterous. No way. There's no way of telling that love could be able to influence a game. Sure, the sales and all that stuff, great, but not love. Well, today, we're going to see someone else that draws a serious crowd. People are influenced by his teachings and his miracles. But he takes it to a level today that seems preposterous. How can you do that? He doesn't have the authority to do that. Or does he? Today, let's see the priority Jesus puts on his message and the authority behind it. Today, let's see the priority that Jesus puts on his message and the authority behind it. Please pay attention as we look at Mark chapter 2, this is a fascinating story. Verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within, within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. We're going through the book of Mark this winter and this spring. And we are following Jesus so far around the countryside. 
where he is casting out demons, healing the sick, even healing someone from leprosy. But the cat is out of the bag, and people are crowded to see him. Mark, the author, companion of Peter, is writing now in the present tense in verses 3 through 11. It's like we are eyewitnesses to this grand story, this crazy story of all these people packed into Peter's mother-in-law's house, which was the base of operations for the disciples in Jesus in Capernaum. This crowded house hearing Jesus teach. You know, crowd is used actually 40 times from now until Mark 10 here in the gospel. The crowd is not a new thing in this time of history. There were teachers and healers at this time that drew crowds within the region. We can think of our age, what draws crowds? Maybe it's talent, wealth, political power. In this age, it was more honor or wise teaching and people would follow. Crowds like today and back then were a sign of success. But we can see that the crowds as we go through the book of Mark, come and they go. Much like today as we see Cowboys fans come and go, depending how they play. We've seen crowds come and go in different ways in our own culture. And crowds are not always seen in the best light today or even back then, especially in the book of Mark. We see that Mark has a negative view of the crowd. The crowd never turns to Jesus in repentance and true belief. Again, like I said, they come and go. The crowds obstruct access to Jesus from those who truly need him. And also the crowd is a place for skeptics to hide and hurl accusations against Christ. See, the crowd allows for anonymity without commitment. You can watch what's happening on the stage, but you actually don't have to interact You don't have to be involved. But here's the thing as we go through Mark and we see this story. As we see certain people in their desperation for Jesus interacting with Jesus, as he heals them and speaks to them, as Jesus does that, the crowd or those watching start to observe, wait, does this involve me? It is super important to see as we go through the book of Mark that enthusiasm and proximity to Jesus is not the same as faith in him. I'm going to say that once again. That enthusiasm and proximity to Jesus is not the same as faith in him. Not a unique problem of that time. It's true here in the valley, too. I call it Christianity by osmosis. Right? If I'm close enough to Christian culture, if I'm close enough to Jesus, then I feel like I have true faith. I mean, church dot dot our city. I mean, almost everyone's been baptized in the valley, either as an infant or as an adult. Our family members go to church, whether it's Christmas or Easter. We know the lingo. We're around Jesus. Is that the same as having faith in him? 
It's more than just being part of the crowd. It's breaking through. Do I dare say it means breaking through the roof and being lowered to his feet? This story is so good. You just can't make this stuff up, right? It's just so profound, right? It's mentioned in Mark and Matthew and Luke, all the synoptics. And what you have here is, again, you're picturing yourself as eyewitnesses as this in the present tense. Could you imagine you're sitting in this house, right? Maybe you're sitting on the ground. And all of a sudden you feel this dirt fall, like falling on your head. And you're like, what is going on? And you look up and you see there is a hole being cut in the roof. Right? And all of a sudden this man is lowered down from the roof onto the ground. In front of Jesus. How many questions must be going on in your head during this kind of event? Right? So much. One, maybe destruction of property. Right? Like, what does Peter's mother-in-law think about what's going on right now? Right? Maybe the next thing, like, you're watching Jesus. Like, what's his reaction here? And you realize he's not agitated about what just happened? Maybe you're thinking... These four guys that did this for their companion, what love they must have for their friend. That they would do this, that they would be next to Jesus. How about just the desperation of this paralytic man? And I think more than all of this is this building anticipation as all of this is unfolding as you're watching Jesus, and this man is in front of him that's paralyzed, and you know that Jesus has healed people, he has healed someone from leprosy, you're like, okay, what's he going to do here? Right? And that's what makes this story so crazy. Jesus does something that you just do not expect at all. He says, your sins are forgiven. I mean, you guys should be like, Jesus, read the room, bro. Have some tact. You know what this guy needs. He's paralyzed. He's desperate. He's gone all the way to the ceiling, done all these things. His legs can't function. Help him. And you say, your sins are forgiven? I try to put this on a scale of what I might understand, right? Like, there's a lot of buzz in my house when uh, one of my daughters gets asked to a dance, right? That's a big deal, right? There's so much buzz. Like, this boy asked me. Maybe you have these kind of situations in your house and all those things. And all the things that go into the dance, right? The ticket costs, the dinner, finding the right dress. That's a huge deal, Right? And all, of, all the girls are getting really excited about this, right? And the buzz comes to me, right? And what do, you, what do you think is the question that's asked, right? Dad, can you give me some money for the dress? And there's anticipation as all the girls are like, okay, who's dad going to shell out, right? <laughs> Imagine if I said to my daughter... I said this in response. I love you. That's not the response we want, right? 
I love you is not the response. We want the money for this. Do you not realize the priority, Dad, right now is that you would give us cash? Jesus, do you not realize the priority right now is healing? But is it? Well, we know the end of the story, right? We know that Jesus actually heals this man, right? That he's restored. And we've talked about this, that that is incredibly important. That we are not simply souls, that our bodies are nothing. Instead, when we get to heaven, we'll have restored bodies, resurrected bodies. That the body is not a bad thing. That Jesus is in the business of restoring our bodies. That creation is valuable. The physical world is valuable. That the earth simply is not going to go away, but there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. That creation is good. So it's not like those things are not a priority. That healing, physical healing is not a priority. That the physical world is not a priority. But I think Jesus is what he's saying is the top priority for all these things to happen is restoration between God and man. That the relationships between us and God would be restored. Even after the paralytic is healed, he will one day get sick again. And he will eventually die. That is true for all of us, even if we're healed. One day we will get sick again. One, way, one day we will eventually die. The priority is much deeper. Here we are. In one of the richest nations in the world. In one of the wealthiest times of history where life expectancy is at what is greatest, infant mortality is low, where we have so many options, where we can go to Woodman's and we can travel two aisles of cheese. We have option after option for our children or whatever it might be. We are busier than ever. But we seem to be worn down. This week, Elmo, the Sesame Street puppet. You know Elmo from Sesame Street, who does that annoying voice. I'm Elmo. Yeah, really like that. Right? He posted something on Twitter, a question. The Twitter question was, how is everyone doing? Well, in just a few days, he got 40,000 responses, Elmo. Not good responses. This is Elmo, a puppet, people responding to him. Laying out their life to him. Here is one of the responses. Every morning I cannot wait to go back to sleep. Every Monday I cannot wait for Friday to come. Every single day and every single week for life. That's what people say to a puppet. As we look at the paralytic, 
we must see we have a similar situation. Many of us fail to see that this man being brought through the roof is us. There is an ache. There is a brokenness. There is a longing. There is sin that has separated us from what we truly need. And Jesus is calling out to this man, Son, calling out to you, daughter. The priority is the separation between you and the one who created you, who knows you. And he's calling you to something. Restoration. He wants a relationship with you. The problem and the priority is your separation from God. A sin that goes deep into the very nature of our soul and our being. An ache that can only be restored by us being in right relationship with the one that made us. I don't know, maybe you come to church to feel better. For friendships, for counsel, for okay coffee. I don't know why you come on Sunday morning. But here is the great physician. He's not saying those things are not important. But he's saying the priority is healing the distance between him and you. That's the priority. Great. Jesus is prioritizing forgiveness of sins. But does he really have the authority and the ability to actually do that? Like, think about this. Does this character in history who we're reading about, who everyone has ideas about who Jesus is, you know, everyone has, you know, usually positive opinions about Jesus in our culture, does he actually have the authority to forgive your sins? Does he know the depths of your heart? Does he know you better than you know yourself? Does he know every hair on your head? Does he know every choice that you've made? Is he the one that can actually restore your life? Really? Does he have authority to do that? Enter in the scribes, right? Here they come. We're going to see them a lot in Mark. And here they are for the first time. Scribes are... Typically, copyists, we'd say, that copied the Torah so that it would continue, right? They knew the Torah very, very well. We could see them kind of the lawyers of that day. And like any good lawyer, they're good at being skeptical, debating. And we find out they have something going on in their hearts about what Jesus just said about the forgiveness of sins. And then we start realizing about Jesus, that Jesus actually knows what goes on in people's minds and their hearts and what they're thinking, right? And he perceives what they're thinking. What's their problem? Their problem by saying, Jesus saying forgiveness of sins is that he is blaspheming. This is something he's charged with quite a bit in the book of Mark. It's actually what... Uh, his charges that sends him 
to his execution, blasphemy. What is so wrong about this statement that Jesus says, your sins are forgiven? The scribes say, well, listen, no one but God can forgive sins. I mean, even the high priest can't forgive sins. And when they do forgive sins, it's through the atonement, not through themselves. Who does this guy think he is? When you sin, you've sinned against God alone. For him to make a statement like that is just absurd. Imagine Mark Frost, one of our elders, maybe he goes on a, uh, a robbery streak downtown Appleton, all these banks, right? And then he takes the money and he blows it on vacations or whatever. The money's not coming back, right? And uh, they find out that, uh, you know, he's the one that did it. And the Post Crescent comes to Emmaus Road and uh, wants to ask about this elder, Mark Frost. And they interviewed David because I'm not going to get interviewed. So David gets interviewed. And David says, Mark Frost is forgiven. Now, if you're anyone that had money in the bank or those that had been defrauded by him, you're like, wait a second, how does David have the right to do that? Is he going to pay me back? Is he a judge? What right does he have to forgive Mark when he's done something against me? In the same way, what right does Jesus have to forgive sins when he's not the one being sinned against, unless. See, the scribes have put together what Jesus is saying about himself. If sin is ultimately against the creator of the universe and how we're supposed to live, and Jesus is saying he has the right to forgive sins, Jesus is claiming a great thing, that he is God himself. Maybe you have discussions with friends about the Bible and, you know, I, I, sometimes I have this. People say, well, where does Jesus claim to be God? Trying to be very patient when people say that to me. If you read the Gospels, it's everywhere. Jesus claims to have authority over demons. He, claim, he is able to have authority over our health over nature, now over sin. Here is God showing up in the flesh and acknowledging it time and time again. It's all over the place that even these skeptics of Jesus say he's claiming to be God. Well, Jesus turns back these thoughts back on the scribes and asks this very, very good question. What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? This is a great question. Let's take it back to the illustrations I used. What is easier to say to my daughter, I love you, or go get my wallet. Right? I would say 
they would say maybe, it's easier to say I love you because you don't have to show anything. Right? You don't know. But if I say, go get my wallet, dad, you're actually showing something. You're shelling out cash. What's easier to say? For Taylor Swift to say, my love for Travis Kelsey is the strongest love in the NFL. Or, Travis Kelsey will score the winning touchdown in overtime at the Super Bowl. What's easier to say? See, Jesus is getting us to think. They're saying, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you don't know. It's, it's this internal thing, right? If you say, get up and walk, that's the harder thing to prove. Please hear this point. Jesus telling the paralytic to get up and walk shows that he has the authority to forgive sins, which is actually the harder thing to say. My giving money to my daughter for a dress shows that I do love her. And the greater thing is me loving her than giving her money for a dress. That Travis Kelsey scoring the winning touchdown at the Super Bowl, I don't think it's going to happen. Shows that maybe there's a love that motivated him to such performance. See, it's no coincidence that when Jesus tells the paralytic, rise... It's the same language at the end of Mark used for Jesus and his resurrection. Healing this paralytic, rising from the dead, proves that he has the ability to forgive sins and reconcile you to God. That he has the ability to cure the most important thing, your broken relationship between you and and God. And Jesus then uses this language, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And good thing we just went through the book of Daniel, but here Dan, Jesus is referring to what Daniel 7 says, this language, the Son of Man. And what did we learn about the Son of Man? That Daniel said one day the Son of Man would come. And what power would he have? He would have dominion and glory and his kingdom would reign forever ever, and it would never be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I am that son of man that is ushering in a kingdom that will never end, that has dominion over all things and all people and over all of your lives. That is who I am. Jesus' priority is is to forgive sins, and he has authority to do it. In Lake Fenton High School in Michigan, there was a sophomore in high school. His name was Eli Florence. 
played for the football team, and he was dying of leukemia. The high school all came together. I mean, it's a big deal. Think about the four men lowering this man. They, the high school is coming together to, to love this, this great guy, Eli. Supporting him, coming around him, especially before the big homecoming game. Jake Kirk, a senior, the star running back for the football team, started calling Eli the king. What authority did he have to call Eli the king? What right did he have to call this boy dying of leukemia the king? On homecoming night, Jake Kirk was crowned homecoming king. And then he took the crown and he took it off and he put it on Eli. And he said, this is the king. Do you not see? That is what Jesus has done. The king who has all authority, all authority over your life, all authority over the world, has taken his crown. And he has gone to the cross and died for you. And he has put it on you. Righteousness. Salvation. And he has took it himself. He has the authority to call you a son and a daughter and a king because he is the rightful king. Our sins can be forgiven. It is his priority to do so. And he has the authority to do it.